Welcome to the Business of Family. I'm your host, Mike Boyd, and this is my look into the world of multi-generational wealth creation, family enterprise, stewardship, family office investing, and the curation of a legacy. On the podcast, I interview members of some of the world's most interesting families to hear how they pass knowledge, resources, values, and wealth to the next generation. I hope you will enjoy sharing this learning journey with me and would greatly appreciate any feedback or referrals you have to offer. To sign up to my weekly Business of Family newsletter, go to businessoffamily.net forward slash newsletter. A.D. Piner is the founder of three technology companies, two of which he's exited so far to create first-generation wealth for his family. A prolific reader, writer, and maker, A.D. brings a refreshing perspective to the way he views family, business, and wealth. In January this year, I was fortunate enough to preview his new book, Life Profitability, which I thoroughly enjoyed. In Life Profitability, A.D. provides you with a new perspective of becoming self-aware, recognizing your values, and understanding your impact. An enriched life and successful business are not mutually exclusive. In fact, this book will provide you with the first steps in building a business that is more sustainable with increased options for you, your employees, and your family. I hope you enjoyed this insightful conversation with A.D. Piner. A.D., welcome to the show. It is fantastic to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mike. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. I am too. And, and we've shared a couple of discussions around this business of family topic. And I'm really excited to have you on today as a founder, first gen founder, to talk about what all of this means to you. But before we get into that, let's understand a little bit about your origin story, the businesses you've started, and how you've put yourself into this position of, let's say, first generation wealth. Yeah, and I, and that's a interesting kind of your question, you know, Mike. And I always want to kind of you know, take the perspective from where I'm at today, right, and kind of you know, cast that backwards. Because when I first found your work, when you didn't even have the podcast, right, so early last year-ish, newsletter only, like this whole concept of you know the business of family was very very top of mind for me, right. And I think that the reason for that, and then kind of answer your your question directly, is I've built and sold two software companies. The first one was WeThemes WooCommerce which I started like in the last, I built the first product in the last year that I was at Varsity, spent six weeks with a corporate kind of that I, a job that I accepted whilst in my final year studying accounting at Stellenbosch University. And then that kind of in that subsequent year after those six weeks, kind of eventually kind of formalized you know, with themes with my co-founders, eventually sold out of that, then started Converjo, which was email marketing automation for e-commerce. So very much kind of staying in that software for e-commerce realm. And then sold that in August 2019 to Campaign Monitor um, for what is a kind of life-changing amount of money. And very much kind of then you're connecting why I started with how I eventually kind of you found your work is, you know, from between kind of Woo Themes and starting Converjo, that's when we set up, my wife and I set up our kind of family office, right? And Converjo was really, well, kind of the exit from Woo Themes really those seeds that we had put into that, right? Then Converjo became one of the kind of majority assets there. Eventually, upon exit, became the majority asset there, which is really why kind of this, you know, just everything that you've worked on, you know, well, not everything you've worked on, but like in terms of the podcast, in terms of your newsletter, the things you've been talking about have been highly prevalent for me. Oh, it's just incredible. And I appreciate your support from such an early beginning as well. Tell me, I just want to touch back on the timeline here between 
these two exits. It sounds like they were actually fairly close together. How do you build a software company that fast and exit for pretty substantial dollars? You know, there's probably a few people in the audience that want to try and replicate that. Yeah. So, so as context of the timelines here that are um, in play, Mike, is so I left Boo Themes and WooCommerce operationally mid-2013, sold out to you know, my business partners, Magnus Mark, at the time. That transaction concluded at the end of 2013, and Convergio's first version launched November 2014. Right. So, and then from 2014, so it's a little less than five years between kind of your know, first version to actually kind of you know, exiting again. And I think the first story that I would tell is I was supposed to take a proper sabbatical after with Eames. That's what I told my wife and that sabbatical didn't materialize. So like, I think that's the first thing if you probably, if you want to condense a timeline, like don't take time off, even though that's not good advice at all. I think hindsight is that's risky because I think kind of burnout is risky there. But realistically, I think the honest answer there is we stumbled onto a very unique idea. We work really hard on differentiating ourselves, even in a congested space, which is kind of marketing software. I think it's in internet terms, it's probably the, the most congested competitive corner of the internet, right? And then we ultimately, I think somewhat, I would say got lucky in terms of the extent of our exit. And the only credit that I would take there in terms of timeline is I had made the decision that I would want to explore kind of, you know, exiting, right? And the family at that stage was was still just over 70% kind of owners of the business. So, so we had, as a family in the business, we had optionality. And we effectively ran a process there. We ran a competitive process, reached out to loads of potential acquirers, got a few parties involved and kind of essentially betting against each other. And that's what kind of got us to a truly kind of you know, incredible kind of you know, multiple on, on, on revenue. So I think that is the part, as I said, I, I, I'm not sure that there's a blueprint there, except for perhaps kind of differentiating oneself. And if you really want to sell, you want to sell that quickly, you have to have something of value and then kind of run a process. Sounds like it was a highly productive sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, lack of sabbatical, right? Um, exactly. So, yeah. Tell me, was exiting or creating an, an asset to exit and ha- creating a financial windfall ever the goal, or was that was it a result of what came out of the process? Yeah. So I think the interesting thing is, Mike, is like when I left WooCommerce, I mean, at that stage, we, I mean, my WooCommerce success was was good, and in itself, it was really life changing, right? But I, the hardest thing at that stage, and again, like I was just to give everyone context as well. This is 2013, so I was 29 at this stage, right? And the biggest burden that I felt on my shoulders at that stage, and my again, in context, my youngest, AD Junior, was about two years old at the time. And the biggest burden I felt was that transition from kind of wealth generation to kind of almost wealth maintenance, right? Or from kind of you know, generate like revenue versus, versus wealth, like whatever words you want to use. And I found that really hard, and I made loads of mistakes along the way. So. I think in that first exit, no, like I don't think wealth was part of the consideration really, even though like I had the foresight at that stage to have created the kind of your family office and have that slightly longer term view, right? It was only really with Convergio where that that became the goal, right? Which is, that is why the family office kind of you know, was the primary investor in the company. The family office had the bigger consideration there. The, the goal there was to eventually exit and for that exit to propel the next phases of what the family office was was going to do. I think it's fascinating, and I'd love to dig in on this a little bit, because there's a number of people in our audience that are first-time wealth. You know, they've risen out of 
similar to my background out of a, a strong middle class created substantial wealth for the first time and all of a sudden have to learn the new value system, the new way of the world. How do you compound it? How do you retain it? And then all of a sudden you're raising children in a way that you never were raised yourself. And there's a whole set of new challenges and also opportunity, of course. So I think it's fascinating. You've made substantial wealth in your 20s and 30s. You've got young kids. You've set up a family office. What does that look like? What does a family office mean to you? And when you set out to try and figure this out for the first time, who did you turn to? Where did you find resources? How did you know what to do? (laughs) Well, the the story here directly is, um, very concretely, is my exit from from Boothemes back in the day was complicated in the sense that, like, I think in any kind of business partner relationships, as long as everyone is aligned towards the same goal, then everything is hunky-dory. And then as soon as someone is not aligned with that your kind of process, then everything is not hunky-dory, you know, kind of overnight almost. So, and, you know, Magnus, Mark and I, we, we chatted, you know, kind of last week, we're on good terms today, but there was about two years after that exit that was complicated. So the reason I say that is effectively what happened is the legal firm that I had used locally in South Africa to help me just kind of negotiate that transaction, put legal terms to it and whatnot. At the same time that that was going on, I asked them this question of like, how do we, you know, how do we think about succession here? Because at that stage, like I had personally held kind of, you know, as an individual, the shelding and with themes in my you know, own capacity. And I at least knew from my just, again, my, my studies, you know, my business background that there were alternatives here. So they had ultimately connected me with a, a local bank that had offices kind of both in the UK and in the Channel Islands. And that's where that conversation started. And I think that's where they were able to help me kind of bridge that gap between, hey, here's professional trustees, right? That can run, you know, a trust for you, can run a family office for you. So it initially was just asking those questions and then getting enough kind of in, again, like the law firm ultimately got the right people around the table. Like I I didn't have this list of, hey, we need these three or four people to help us do all of these things. Like they eventually called people to the table and like explained the process to me and kind of ultimately got our buy-in as a family to go ahead with that. Amazing. And so do you, when you say three or four people, do you end up having people working for you as a single family office or are you in a multi-family office environment where there's shared back office resources with others or more a holding company or some other structure in place? Yeah, so definitely, definitely latter. The the professional trustees we use, they, I, I think they told me they they probably have about fifty, sixty you know, kind of you know, families like on the books at this stage. So yes, they're. I think they they've got some economies of scale there to help service those. I don't think we're at that stage of kind of wealth generation that warrants having a full kind of back office team that runs runs this thing just yet. Leave that for the next sabbatical, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Between the first and the second exits, and I think I want to follow up on this because I think it's, you know, has happened in quick succession. The lessons that you took from one to the next, and now you're building a third software company. How have you evolved, and how has your understanding of value system evolved in terms of your purpose, your drive, your motivation? Now that there's no longer financial stress in life, yeah, I think. The most existential answer that I have there, Mike, is, is, and that's probably what it has come down to for me, is I think if you asked me five years ago, I would not have used these words, even though I now know that these things are were truly prevalent then as well, which for me, the biggest goal is thinking through like, how can I wake up every single morning and spend my time this day, this week, this month, this year, just truly kind of, you know, manifesting the, the truest expression 
and version of myself in anything that I do, whether it's creating a business, whether it's showing up as a kind of, you know, as a spouse to, to, to my wife or as a dad to my kids, like whatever I do, like it should be that truest expression of self. And again, hence why, like if, if, if anyone follows me online, like there's always, I, I would hope that in anything that I touch, anything that I create, like that's what I'm ultimately trying to do. There, there is that kind of existential part, whereas I, that's what I want to do. And I think I've become clearer about that. And especially going into the third software company here is the financial part now is not the primary kind of you know, consideration. Like things for me, for example, you know, that are highly important in, you know, in this next company is I truly want to optimize for diversity, right? I, I, I want to make, like, that's the one of the kind of you know, things that I think I can use the company for is to literally within the kind of you know, tech sector, within the startup sector, just create a wider pool of more diverse candidates and give them opportunities, right? So like, because that is something that really aligns with my my values. So over time, and again, like Converger was, I wouldn't say I was fighting for survival, but it was that kind of leveling up, right? Whereas as that kind of played out, as Converger became a success, and even though it wasn't kind of liquid kind of uh, kind of wealth there, like there was at least kind of a, a bigger likelihood there was going to be a success and eventually there was going to be liquidity and and thus breathing room and being able to do these other things. And those other things I said is I would broadly term them as like, I want to spend my time that kind of where if anyone looks at me, they're like, oh, that's 80, right? And that's a full spectrum 80. Like it, like that's really something that's close to my heart and ego for that matter. Incredible. I'm curious to understand what that looked like for you. You know, waking up, living your day exactly as you want with your family, creating, living life to the full. What does it actually look like for you? What's, a, what's an ideal day? And that last exit, did it actually bring that for you? Were you able to cultivate that in your life? I think the kind of, when I think about ideal days, Mike, I, I really think about being present. And I think prior to, you know, and even with, with Converger, the start of it, like I, I think it was retracing my steps, probably about a year into it. Like I, I got myself into a position where my therapist essentially helped me understand that I was constantly in fight or flight mode and my brain was on fire. And I subsequently backed myself in a bit of, you know, into a bit of a corner where I felt like I should change everything in my life which would have been disastrous at that stage. And that didn't happen. Kind of my therapist helped me kind of walk back from the cliff, um, edge of the cliff and, and give both my kind of, you know, uh, you know Sean, my, my wife, the kids, everyone in my life was gracious enough to essentially give me a second chance, right? And to kind of mend those kind of broken bridges. What I learned through that was, and what my therapist got me into was mindfulness at the time. And the reason I mentioned mindfulness there and coming back to why I mentioned kind of presence is I now know that if I can work in a way, if I can manifest my truest self in a database, it doesn't matter what that actually is, but I can be present in all of those things, then that is a good day. So when I'm with my kids, I want to be with my kids. I want to be able to sit on the floor, play Lego with them. Or if I go with a run you know, with AD Junior, I don't want to be interrupted by someone from work pinging me on Slack or having to take a call, right? Or when Jean and I are sharing a glass of wine and philosophizing about the world and our lives. Like I, I, I don't want to be drawn into other things that aren't that important at that stage. So it, like to that extent, even though I'm a creature of habit and I enjoy structure in my daily work and I have some routines there, it's less about that and more about that presence. And having that awareness where, you know, things, there are multiple things that 
pull us into different directions in a daily basis, but having that awareness of when that happens. And again, that's just, for me, that's mindfulness. Having the awareness and then just pulling one's focus and attention back to the, the most important thing at hand in that moment. Sounds amazing. And I'm curious now, why number three? Why did you dive back in into the world of entrepreneurship? I mean, is, is that a silly question in itself? Are you wired as an entrepreneur and you just have to keep building? Or is there another itch to scratch or some other reason entirely? Is there, is there kind of a, all of the above? You know, I think one of, the kind of, one of my bigger learnings just in the last couple of years is that there are things that I'm good at and there are things are, that I'm not great at, right? So in terms of the family office, for example, post we teams, I try to make many investment decisions or at least influence them, right? And, you know, many, like I did in my personal capacity, for example, I would cherry pick shares, I would kind of public, you know, securities and like I lost a lot of money, right? Or I would make these kind of small impulsive kind of angel investments. So one of those learnings there was, you know what? I'm not great at being an, an, an investor, right? I'm a builder and I'm an entrepreneur and that's okay. So Post Convergio, and again, for context, I spent about 13 months with Campaign Monitor, the acquiring company, kind of you know, post that. And I eventually kind of, there was no timeline based on that, but the time I spent there did get me thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I explored many paths there, right? Like becoming more of an active investor, maybe kind of you know, starting a fund, raising some money from other kind of you know, LPs, like all of, like that was interesting. That is still interesting to me, right? But I didn't feel quite ready for that. That didn't get me as excited, right? I also considered kind of, because I do some coaching on the side. So maybe some consulting slash coaching, like that part. And I really enjoy that. But I also didn't feel like I could build a business out of that. Similarly, with my book out now, I considered, you know, totally just embarking on this path of becoming a keynote speaker, you know, publishing you know, books, you know, writing more books, that kind of thing. But the thing in all of those that were lacking for me and why I ultimately opted to create again is firstly, like whatever I do, I need to create something, right? Like that's the one part of me that I know. But then like there were other things and the prominent or the kind of the most prominent one was I wanted to build a team again, right? Like I, I truly, you know, since since I left Campaign Monitor in September last year, right? So it's about four, four or five months. I really miss my team and not necessarily my team. Obviously, I miss my team. I've got great relationships there. But I miss having a team. And like that's one of the reasons I feel like, you know, I could have probably done something else. It didn't have to be software. But I really wanted to create again and I wanted to build a team again. Like those are just as a thinking through these decisions, like those are things that I just now know they might not be like that forever. Like 10 years' time, it might not be that important for me. But for now, like those things are like part of I would say my higher values as an individual. And I need to kind of, honor, like for me to be truly happy, I need to scratch that itch or at least kind of honor those values. It's a terrific answer. And I think all of the entrepreneurs in the audience are nodding their head in agreement that there's always that need to create regardless of level of success or freedom. But I love the optionality that you've cultivated for yourself in your life. It's amazing. Let's turn back to some of that optionality now in terms of the financial success that you've unlocked. What has it meant for your family? And how have you approached learning about this sort of content for the first time? How have you explored this concept of multi-generational wealth or the family office and the discussions that you have with your wife in terms of, well, what do we do with this and what impact does it have on our kids? And I, I, the reason I ask such a, a personal question, if you don't mind, is simply because I think the lens of coming at it for the first time, you know, first gen 
is particularly interesting. So I'd love to understand your perspective on that. Yeah. And I think the, you know what the the interesting Mike is, the interesting thing, Mike, is that, you know, both both Jean and myself, we were brought up in a way where kind of we never needed anything extra. Like our our parents always like I think if you ask Sean as well, she'd give a similar answer, which is they always provided all of our needs, very much had a kind of you know, middle to upper middle class upbringing, like nothing wrong there. And I remember something my dad told me back in the day, which is he always told me that as a parent, you always aspire to give your kids more than what you had or better than what you had yourself. And I think for, for Jean and myself, you know, the... I think the biggest fear, by the way, we have here is that we kind of we raise spoiled brats, right? That, you know, ultimately get to kind of, you know, get to adulthood at some stage. And they can't be individuals that just have some kind of backbone and some kind of, you know, purpose of their own in lives, right? Because the reality is my kids have it really easy and they have a really great life. And they, you know, compared to the average kid, they've already experienced so many things that, like, that Jean and I didn't experience as kids. Right. Like my kids have already traveled internationally three or four times. Right. Which is no mean feat considering we're all the way down south in Cape Town, South Africa. Right. I think I traveled abroad abroad the first time when I was 13 and that was for a rugby tour. Right. So my kids are six and nine today and they've already traveled kind of, you know, abroad multiple times. So they, they have a really great life. They, like, there's nothing, like, they will tell me, obviously, otherwise, that there's always more things that they want, right? Whether it's another, you know, 100 Roblox, right? Or, you know, this Lego or whatever the case is, they have a really great life. And I said, like, for Jean and I, as we think through this, it really is through that kind of trying to mitigate that worst fear, the worst case scenario of, like, essentially kind of, you know, reaching or getting the kids to that point where they're just really spoiled brats. And any tips so far on lessons learned or particular tactics you're approaching to try and instill the sort of value system or work ethic, for lack of a better phrase, in kids so young? Yeah, I think two things that you know immediately come to mind that I think we've been really successful with until now. The one is I truly believe in transparency with the kids. And Jean and I, and again, like the, for me, like this is something that I learned from my dad. And the, the example that I have here is. When I was probably about 13, 14, 15, during high school, my dad was kind of in his business. He would get me during school holidays to do data capturing for him, which effectively meant he had not kind of, you know, for a couple of months, he would wait until school holidays so that I could get into Pastel and I could kind of capture source documents for him, right? What was great about that, I mean, it was minimum wage um, and whatnot. I at least got McDonald's. That was the reward, you know, on top of the minimum wage. But what was great about that is whenever I would capture an invoice, my, I would actually, and I would have a question about it. I would actually ask my dad, like, Listen, why are you kind of spending this money on this? Or what is this for? Or why does this invoice look like different to that? And my dad engaged me on that, which w- with regards to kind of money and how businesses work, I got some access to information that, that, that I didn't even get, get at university, right? Because university gives you all the kind of theoretical academic knowledge, right? Whereas just in those little interactions, my dad gave me a bit of that kind of behind the scenes kind of context or consideration, which illuminates so much more. So in like in that spirit, like that transparency is something we try and do with our kids, right? So the kids know that the family office exists, for example. Like the extent that a six and a nine-year-old can understand these things, they know why the family office you know, exists. And I, we try and encourage them to ask us questions, whether it's about the family office, whether it's about our lives. I often have, especially with A.D. Junior, who 
has a better vocabulary, obviously. I mean, he's he's slightly older, right? He's nine years old. I have like huge kind of philosophical, you know, kind of conversations with him about like, what does it mean to be like within your own magic? And like, how do you, how are you going to be your truest self, right? So, and again, for me, that's just transparency. I don't really mind whether he gets, understands 1% thereof or 99%. It's just about that transparency. So I think that's the first thing there. Because the last thing that I want is my kids to get a version of life or money, especially from elsewhere. Because that might be subpar and that might not be, within kind of our values, right? So truly encouraging that transparency and allowing them to ask questions, I think is important. The second part to that is like, is gratitude. Like gratitude is something that we just nail into our kids like so very often. Like it's just something like on a daily basis, like there's two or three kind of you know, moments, whether they're big or small, like we will just drumbeat kind of gratitude into them. Like say thanks. We have to say thanks. Remember like, there's so many privilege here, whatever the case is, like whatever the angle is, we try and find those moments to connect it to things that's happening in real time to this bigger thing, which is I need to be thankful for what I have, right? So th- those, again, like with young kids, I think those are the things we've been most successful with until now. Incredible values. And I love the examples. Thank you. One final question on that topic. Have you thought about inheritance and do you have a a strong opinion either way. Do you think the kids should inherit or via the family office or are you going to get out there and spend it all before they get a chance? Oh, so 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 two things that come to mind there, Mike, is one, yes, I always thought that the kids should inherit, right? And, you know, post-exiting Convergio, I kind of, John and I sat down and I drew her this kind of graph and I said, if we start spending some of this money now, this is what the graph looks like. If we don't, like, even if we just don't spend any of that money for the next year, we go to infinity, right? Not really, like the, like the exit was life-changing, wasn't infinity. And she looked at me and she said, like, that's crazy. Like, why would we need this to go to infinity, right? Because I've always, I don't know, like, Jean and I balance each other out kind of quite a bit there. I, I, I'm always the more cautious one, uh, whereas she's more like, this year we should invest in our lives right now. We should have good experiences, not worry too much kind of about the long term, especially not about infinity, right? And then... I think I listened to a couple of months ago, I listened to an episode you did with Richard Eyre, right? Where, and he tells a story about the provocative, and he, and he prefaces it with, he says, the answer is very provocative and it's not meant to kind of allude to anything. But the question is very simply, like, should kids inherit anything? And I listened, I was on a run along the beach. I had to stand still, not because I was tired, because I was so, like, it struck me straight between the eyes. I was like, you know what? Maybe the kids shouldn't need to inherit, right? So, I think the, the the kind of ultimately kind of where we are, and this interestingly enough is goes way back to the first kind of you know constitution we put into place for the family office, which was always that from the family office, it's the family office should serve as a leg up for the trustees and thus the kids, right? It's not a handout, and you can't get the handout to buy a Lamborghini. Like that's not within our family values. Neither Jean nor myself we drive we drive nice cars. We do not drive kind of over the top sports cars, right? And nothing wrong with that. If the kids want to do that themselves one day, they can totally earn their own money and buy their own Lamborghini, right? But the family office, for example, like one of the things that we put in there is that the family office should always prioritize business ideas from the trustees, right? Which means like if they can come to the table and say, listen, I've done the work. I've validated kind of this this idea. Here's a minimum viable product. Can the family office invest in this and preferably on favorable terms? Then by all means, like the, the family office should be a leg up there to that. And to that extent, like inheritance, yes, 
it should be a leg up, not an out, basically. For a first gen, you've got an incredible grasp on this by the sounds of it. I love that example. And it immediately made me think of the family bank concept. I don't know if you've listened to that one with Emily Griffiths Hamilton, but she talks about exactly the same thing, that the financial wealth should be stewarded from generation to generation and passed down. And ultimately, each generation should have a dynamic wealth creator that actually tops that up. And hopefully you're handing it down in even greater condition than, than which you were bestowed. And you know that family bank is there to fund viable businesses or to fund education or to fund something that moves the human capital forward and other things that are important to the family. I just love that concept. Exactly. Because if you think about it like that, and yes, I did listen to that kind of you know, episode as well, right? And what I love about that is if, if we talk about kind of moving that kind of the human capital forward, right? If the family office funds those business ventures, it's essentially non-dilutive to that extent, right? Because it's it literally stays within the family, like air quotes, right? Which I think is a great way to think about that, right? And like again, you know, 2021, we're already seeing that there's in multiple sectors, there's now very different kind of or there's alternative ways of funding. It's not just bootstrapping versus venture capital or small business loan anymore. There's alternative methods now. And I think to that extent, like having a family office be able to fund the family, like that's just another alternative. What I love about that is it stays objective somewhat, right? Like there needs to be a business case for that. This is not just to stroke, you know, one of my kids' ego one day and say, sure, here's a couple of, you know, kind of a thousand bucks to start this thing. Like you have to prove that you've done the work, you're going to do the work, someone's going to keep you accountable, right? I think those things are important. Absolutely. It sure is. And speaking of human capital, I once heard you refer to paying a life dividend, which I think is a nice segue into the next topic. Can you tell me what that means, getting away from financial capital, but paying a life dividend? Yeah. I think the, kind of the, the, the context to the life dividend, Mike, is, and I'll give you a concrete example, right, is this notion of, so, so my new book, Life Profitability, The New Measure of Entrepreneurial Success, what I want to explore there was kind of how do you build a business that's not just financially profitable in the narrow sense of the word, but truly kind of, you know, build a business that kind of profits your, your whole life. And the way I think about kind of life dividends there is that not everything has to have a financial return. Sometimes like you can use a resource, whether it's money or otherwise, to essentially kind of, you know, progress or enhance or empower a different part of your life. So, you know, one of the best things that kind of we did as a family, and I deserve absolutely zero credit for this because I was 100% not keen, but this was Jean's idea, is post kind of you know, conversion, a couple of months, literally like three months afterwards, we were renting we were renting a house in a small little beach town, about an hour and a half you know, outside of Cape Town. And the house was on sale in the market. And Jean said, she's gonna, just going to phone the estate agent and like, we just find out like, what is the price? And I was like, why are you even doing this? We're not buying a beach house, right? We own our primary residence. Like we're not buying a beach house. It's not a good financial investment, right? Especially not now. Like, let's save some money. And we ultimately bought a really nice place on the beach in the same town. Closed them pretty quickly. Everything happened like stars aligned. And in the last year or so, you know, Mike, like that has been for the family. That's just been such a kind of a, just a massive asset. And just an, when I say asset, like we've built so many new traditions as a family of four because it's so close to home. Like we can get there on weekends. Like there's new routines and stuff. And 
again, financially, it doesn't make sense, right? It's not enhanced the kind of our financial portfolio. But in terms of our life portfolio, like that is that has added so much value, right? And like I can almost cast that all the way back to like the first purchase we made post booth themes was the primary residence that we're in today, right? And like that's like we're still same house. We're renovating at this stage, so doubling down on that. But again, like that kind of that's literally where I feel, you know, a, a financial transaction and decision starts paying life dividends, right? Because ultimately, if I think about that, that's the home and the foundation from which I build conversion, right? And I, I would not be able to do that and have explored all these other things if that home, and it's not about the building itself, right? It's what happens in, in the home. If I didn't have that, if it, you know, if it wasn't full, if it wasn't wholesome and holistic and, you know, took care of like all of our needs in that kind of wholesome, holistic way. So like really, like I, I love that idea of repurposing a financial asset and turning it into something that, that really generates those life dividends. And that will like, I mean, the two examples I used are for kind of actual buildings and homes here, other families and other individuals, it might mean different things. But in either case, like it was not a financial decision. The goal was not a financial reward or outcome. Yeah, it means more to you than the financial cost of the transaction by the sounds of it. Exactly. Tell me, how do you draw the line on something like that? You know, you used the, the extreme example before of the family office not funding a Lamborghini, but one could argue that that's a life dividend that brings great joy and satisfaction. So how do you, is that just purely through the value system and structure and or was it simply, we've had this great exit, we want one or two things, then we'll be comfortable and feel safe in our primary residence. And from there, we'll sort of lock it up and build it. Yeah. And I guess the best answer, Mike, is probably that it's it's kind of evolving. You know, I think for, for Jean and I both, the, the only way for us to do this and to chart this course going forward is to almost stress test it. And I think the only way, you know, is conversation, right? So like you know, with Beach House, for example, like, that was definitely not on the radar before we had the conversation. Now, I, I, again, like I think that conversation has shifted, right? And our kind of appetite or needs has probably changed, and, and for always would have changed. Now, right, kind of going forward, right? We like there's a different lens through which we would view similar considerations going forward. So, I think the, the as I said, the key there is just constant communication and acknowledging that as we're creating this that this will evolve, right? So, and as primary custodians, like Jean and I need to have those conversations. And then for me, it goes back to making sure that there's enough, enough kind of opacity there, transparency with regards to the kids so that they can also build on that. Like the last thing that I want to do here is like to, to rule from the grave kind of thing, right? Like I, I don't believe that neither the family office nor any of our individual lives should be so rigid, like where we, we're constantly trying to fit into a single recipe. Right. Like the one thing I hate, hate such a strong word, dislike about many kind of, you know, business or self-help books is they propose that there's this single blueprint. You just take that blueprint, here's the 10 steps and it's going to get you to the outcome. And I think life is just way more unique and personalized there. Right. Which for me means the kind of our family office, our value system should always be kind of, you know, signposts along the way and illuminate certain things. But they should not kind of tell you to not do certain things, right? Like they're like we should all make mistakes. Like the one thing again, my my dad loved to say, like he he prevented many. Well, he prevented me making many decisions, especially as a young kind of well a teenager and then a young adult, where he would say, 
And I would tell him like, dad, why, why don't you allow me to do this thing? And he said, well, I know it's going to be a mistake. And I was like, dad, I don't agree. Like, you know, maybe you should allow me to make some of my own mistakes. And I think that's the part where I believe these things shouldn't be rigid. They should be based in core values, but maybe that core value translates differently in 10 years time. And in 10 years time, the core value makes it okay to buy a Lamborghini, right? Like I don't have a concrete example of how that to connect those dots, but I'm at least open-minded enough to know that as things change, like values, well, values can evolve as well, but the way they're applied and thought about like should change, right? Plus, like I know that I will be challenged in this. 80 junior, nine years old tells me the other day, dad, your generation was totally different than my generation. I was like, in what way, 80? And he says, well, dad, for one, we have better TV. And I was like, well, how is that? And, and the, the context there was like, we were trying to get him to just not moan about like going to his drum lessons and his swimming lessons and go for a run, you know, with me on the same day. And like, that's what he came out with. So I'm sure that this, that from generation to generation, like we will always differ with kind of our predecessors, right? These things need to evolve and they need to be liquid enough to kind of evolve with the time. So as I said, I think the only way there is to take that approach of um, very much lean startup, build, measure, learn methodology. Like that's how I also think about these things. That's fantastic. And he's nine years old and already challenging you on. Please send me all, please send me all your empathy. Anyone listening, just send me your empathy. Like any <laughs> junior is, yes, challenging human being in, in the best way possible, by the way. Probably grow up to be a great entrepreneur like his dad, I imagine. You mentioned your father not wanting to see you fail, but the opportunities that you have to learn from such failure. I'm curious if you have a favorite failure or something that you know, stands out to you that maybe set you up for later success or something that you learned a great deal from, but is there a favorite failure in your timeline? I guess uh, the most prominent one that at least comes to mind there is, you know, after we themes, and again, like this story now, it's interesting how when these stories now get recounted and told, it just kind of proves, and maybe only I'm a sample size of one, but it proves survivorship bias, right? Because everyone forgets these things, even though, like, I'm on record sharing this failure before. I published kind of stories on my blog, but effectively what happened was post We Themes, and I left We Themes because I, I wanted to challenge myself again as entrepreneur. And I started working with something else. It was called Public Beta at the time, and it was meant to be this kind of online learning community and accountability kind of community for, for entrepreneurs. And I started working on that at the same time that I ultimately ended up kind of discussing my, also my financial or equity ex- exit from, you know, from Uthemes, which was tough. And I ultimately burnt out. Like I completely, completely, completely burnt out. And it's so much so that I, I shut down public beta. I couldn't. And, and the day I knew that I was burnt out was when one of my team members asked me a, a simple question about like, hey, like, should this button go there? Like, what color should it be? Like, what do you think? And I just lost it. I like I completely lost it. I was like, I have zero capacity to even think about this. And I realized how irrational that was in the moment. And I realized that this was a complete. I was just stressed too far. And as I said, like at that stage, the kind of the family had already invested quite a bit of money into that, and it was hard to just shut it down. Like, and I and I loved the idea at the time as well. And I think kind of if I like, in sharing the failure, like one of my biggest lesson, lessons learned from that and how that's changed my behavior going forward is really this notion of I should not try and serve two gods at any given stage because one of them is going to be unhappy with me. Like I should try and sequence things more, right? And like I take that, you know, both, I mean, I talk, you know, spoke about kind of being present and just things I do, right? That's serving two gods, right? Like trying to check email 
on my phone here whilst playing Legos. Like that's serving two gods, right? Neither of those, you know, gods, you know, small g gods are are getting my kind of you know proper attention or due attention at that stage. But as a that that burnout, that failure is something that that I remember. Like that there is scar tissue there that has definitely shaped the way that I conduct myself and the kind of decisions I make um, and have made ever since. I can imagine. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's I think it's very raw and very real. I'm curious now to go back to your book, which I had the pleasure of reading prior to this conversation, Life Profitability. To me, it was a breath of fresh air, particularly, as you say, in the world of business books and, and self-help that's all formulaic. This is refreshingly new and almost giving readers and entrepreneurs permission to do things their way. Can you tell us a little bit more about life profitability? Yeah. So I think the way I would almost, I mean, I mentioned life profitability before, right? Which is just at the core is this idea of when, like whether it's building your own business or whether just your professional career, I think the same applies there is this notion of we do these things, we do work. And at the start of that, I think, I don't think we love to work. Like very simply, I do not think that we're put on this kind of, you know, we're, we've manifested as a human race in this universe to work, right? I think that's a very narrow um, and silly definition, at least. And the kind of the core concept there is then just if you build a business, if you kind of grow on this career path, your professional career path, like how do you do something that's not just financially kind of, you know, profitable, right? And yes, we all need money to pay the bills. So I'm not excluding that. I'm just broadening that definition to say, like, this needs to be profitable in terms of your whole life. And I think the biggest kind of the, that caught me there is this notion of work-life balance, right? Which immediately kind of proposes that work and life are these completely separate things, independent of each other, and they can keep each other in balance. And the way I'd like to kind of reframe that is to think more about life portfolio, where work is just part of life. And there are many other things that are important there you know, as well, whether it's family and friends, whether it's side projects and hobbies, whether it's your health, right? I mean, health is something that we always, you know, when you're working hard, we always compromise on health, like it's health and sleep, right? So really thinking about that life portfolio and thinking about the same way that you would kind of balance any investment portfolio to hedge against or diversify against risk is to truly balance that life portfolio of those things. And the thing that really got me onto kind of the term life profitability was ultimately a Thoreau, Henry Thoreau kind of quotes, where he says, essentially says, you know, the, the cost of anything we do in life is just life. And what he effectively just says there is like every single minute of our day, year, whatever, we only have finite kind of attention, energy, time to do anything. So the decision to do anything is costing us life. And what I unfortunately know, I shared the story earlier about how I got to that edge you know, of a cliff in my life. And I rationalized even, because I'm really great at rationalizing, even when I'm wrong, that I needed to kind of to get rid of everything in my life, right? And getting to that moment and just almost looking back, even though I was successful, financially successful, successful as an entrepreneur, there was so much collateral damage, right? Along the way, so many life costs that I ultimately accrued. And that's kind of, that's my biggest hope with the book here is to really just inspire everyone to, Take that step back and just take that slightly wider lens to what success actually means for you as an individual. Because again, I mean, I said when I told the story of public beta and the failure there and the survivorship bias there, like mainstream media, unfortunately, has created this very, very, very narrow, very specific definition 
of what it means to be successful. And ultimately, like I that does probably serves like 0.1% of the population. 0.1% of the population is supposed to be the next Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, right? For the rest of us, there's a much wider, much more magical, much more diverse definition of success. The responsibility though is on ourselves to define that and figure out what our kind of what our own kind of unique life profitability actually looks like. Beautifully said. I'm interested in understanding the scar tissue, the collateral damage that you talked about. How much of that has fed back into the values that you're now bringing into parenting and the business of family and the values that you've outlined in the constitution? Has that informed your choices going forward and how you define success for the family as well as the individual? Yeah, I'm very much so right. I mean, I think again, like you know, going back to the same thing that my dad told me, right, which is like you want better for your kids than kind of what you had kind of yourself, right? And I think you know those lessons learned, those realizations definitely gets fed back. And I think the the beautiful part thereof, the the part that makes it truly resilient, Mike, is that those lessons learned, the scar tissue, is not just mine, right? It is now shared scar tissue, right? Because, you know, whether the kids, maybe the kids are too young to have realized to truly, or at least vocalize like, hey, we, we remember that time when dad wasn't there because he was constantly working, right? Or when dad was constantly short with us for like a month on end, because they wouldn't know necessarily know that I was stressed. But at least with Jean, like she has that transparency and, and, and context about what I was going through. So like with both of us and same thing with her journey, right? And her businesses or just as her kind of you know, her journey as an individual, like we now have that shared or communal scar tissue almost. So those lessons learned, the realizations, the ideas to counter them, right? That translates into kind of values become this shared communal thing. It's not just kind of this, especially being kind of the, the male here, right? It's not just the kind of, you know, patriarchal kind of dictator either. It really is about you know, Jean and I, as a, both as individuals, but also as a unit, kind of informing that, kind of distilling that, gaining some clarity about that, and then feeding it back into that system, which again, I think is all through conversation, that transparency with the kids, like, again, age appropriate or not appropriate, but trying to get them involved in that conversation. Because any lesson that we learned, like that should not be stated as fact. That's also just our experience. But we might have some clarity or some idea or some inspiration about what would this look like if this were to happen again? Or how do we avoid this if something similar did pop up, right? And I think that's the more valuable conversation than being kind of matter of fact, like, listen, you're like, because I I don't agree in pattern matching to that extent. In fact, I think pattern matching makes us kind of robotic and formulaic. And I think that neglects much of the magic of life. So I think it is just, again, going through that process, reflecting and then feeding it back into the system, and then IPU word here, but the system, the machine uses machine learning, right? There's some kind of communal or shared you know, intelligence that then forms because those conversations are just had. I love how you keep coming back to transparency and the amount that you're sharing. And earlier in the conversation, you said, I don't care if they miss 99% of it, even if they pick up 1% of the context of this conversation, you know, it's still important. And it, it reminds me of conversations we've had on this podcast about the benefit of elders telling stories in families. And obviously we're talking about real multi-generational families, but I think it's always important to learn the lessons from 
prior generation stories, but the lessons that the current generation takes from it might be completely different than those who experienced it at the time. And I think that's exactly what you've just described. Yeah. And like, if, if you think about that, Mike, right, I mean, you know, some of the most influential kind of stories that have had an impact on my life in the most recent kind of past are just that the stories. It's not like I, I, for a while I got deep into the Stoics, right? And I, like that was my first exposure to, to Stoic philosophy and I got deep into Buddhism, right? And, and books, you know, in terms of Buddhism, you know, books like Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, you know, Paulo Coelho's Alchemist, like those are two stories about journeys and they're fictional stories, right? But the stories are the things that resonate. I understand that facts doesn't really matter. It's just a story, right? And the story is just there to inspire or to illuminate different things that we didn't think was otherwise possible. And again, like I, I like that idea of stories being shared versus trying to you know distill this down to a very specific blueprint, right? Because that blueprint, again, like even if I created a perfect blueprint for something today, it's probably going to be outdated within six, you know, six to 12 months, right? That's, that's the pace at which the universe moves at this stage. So I would much rather tell stories and then allow the listener to that story to take the value that they, that resonates most with them or is most relevant to kind of what moment they find themselves in. Perfect. And I know you're a voracious reader and you also love to write, but I'm curious after being such a great software entrepreneur, you're lining up to go business number three as well. What was the motivation for writing and publishing the book? So I guess part of this is the most interesting kind of part of my own kind of uh, journey into some, I, I'm not a Buddhist, right? But there's you know, some of the kind of you know, practices and principles that resonates with me is also now this acceptance that I actually think a healthy dose of ego is really good, but I don't think without ego, I know I wouldn't be doing anything that pushes me forward. I would not be creating and I don't think we would have innovators, disruptors, creators, makers, artists, whatever, right? So I guess you know, part of why I did the book is just that ego, right? I think I, I'm really passionate about the idea, right? And many of the ideas have origins in my own journey, both just as AD, but also just within how we built Convergio and the interactions we had with my team, right? And I, I would love to get those ideas out there. And you know, with the book out now, like it's, I, I'm most curious about what resonates and how other people apply that, right? So I think that's the first part thereof. Like that's, that's definitely the impetus for that. But taking a step back about the why, the bigger thing there for me, Mike, is I often think about my legacy, right? And I often think like, I, I spent way too much time uh, listening, late night listening to Leonard Cohen with a good glass of red wine and then kind of think about kind of my legacy. But for me, the book, to that extent is like, and the way, by the way, the way I think about legacy is, you know, if if I were to die tomorrow, which is sounds totally morbid, right? I, the goal would have been up until tomorrow would be to have left my kids or anyone who cares enough breadcrumbs about who I really was so that they can, if they wanted to, right? I mean, it, I like, they, they should not do this to indulge me because I'm not here there you know, anymore then, but leave enough breadcrumbs so that they can retrace my steps and ultimately figure out or create that picture of like who, who I really was. And again, like that speaks to that. Hence why I said like, as an individual, like my, one of my highest values is that kind of that, how do I manifest the truest version of myself? And I think the book, you know, I I wrote the book in such a way that it, it really is me. Like I am in that book. And like, it's just one of those, well, it's maybe not one, like there's a couple of breadcrumbs there. So with regards to my legacy, 
like I really wanted that in there as well. Like, and again, like that's that's more intimate, that's more specific to me, to my family, to those closest to me. So on a micro level, that's what I wanted to do with the book. And I said on a macro level, I I would love to contribute to kind of a, you know, just a well, better capitalism, like for lack of a better word, right? Where like I totally believe capitalism has brought us many good things. I also see the flaws, right? And I I would love for life profitability to be held up as one of those alternative or augmented versions of what capitalism can be if we just broaden um, its definition a little bit. Well, I can tell you that in the week or so that the book has been out, it's already been impactful for me. And I can see others online that are already reacting to it. So I have no doubt it's going to be hugely successful, satisfy the ego, I hope. But at the same time, it is actually a wonderful read. And this concept of legacy and breadcrumbs, I I love it. I mean, it so resonates with my interest as well. We often talk uh, in my newsletter or on the podcast here about the benefits of documenting family history. And again, passing down stories from elders and understanding where we come from. What is the fabric? What is the makeup of this family? Who have I got in me? and, And why is that important? I'm curious if there are any other ways that you intentionally or unintentionally leave breadcrumbs. How else do you document your history within your family for the next generation to discover? Yeah. So we probably don't do, as a collective, uh, we probably don't do that good a job of it. Even though I think, you know, social media probably makes it a little easier, right? By just kind of your posting and whatnot, like assuming that that data is still there, you know, in, in 10, 20, 34 years time. Like you could probably get some insight there. I mean, one of the things that I personally do, like, is I, I have a notebook. I have many notebooks, and I've now changed it to being digital format, so it should live on forever. And like many of those things are not things I ever intend to publish, but Jean has the details to you know, to it, and the kids will eventually have details to that. And again, if if I'm not here, then they could recount those kind of stories, right? Because it's. I'm at least recording it. And I know Jean does something similar, you know, to that as well. So I think as individuals, right, and as parents to our kids and as custodians of this kind of, this first phase of our kind of, you know, heritage effectively, like there are bits there, but that's definitely something I think as a, as a collective that we could do a better job of making sure that we don't rely on the Facebooks and Instagrams and, you know, YouTubes of this world to keep our, our, our most precious memories safe. Yeah, absolutely. And even conversations like this one that we're sharing now is another wonderful way that you're sharing your stories and documenting them as you go, even if that's not the direct intention. Yeah, totally. So, Adi, it's I'd love to keep going, but it's time for our final question. And being a listener of the show, you know it's one that I always ask. Imagine you're writing a letter to your children. What is one lesson or idea that you don't think many parents would mention but you consider important to understand. So I've touched on this a, a couple of times, and purposely so as well, is I the one thing that, and we've already started this with our kids at least, right? But it's really like, do the work, continue learning towards discovering who you really are, right? And then figure out like how to truly manifest that in most of the things that you do in life. I think like having that clarity, and by the way, I think, Key there is, I think it's always a journey, right? It's it's like, I think the meaning of life is to get to know thyself, right? And to manifest that. So I don't think it's a kind of, a, there's a, a finish line there. But having that clarity and the sooner one has that clarity, it becomes such a great filter for what is important in life, what to spend time on. 
Because otherwise life will pull you in so many different directions. And I'm not advocating for not exploring and trying things, but knowing who you are, knowing what is important, like truly important, um, and knowing plus minus where you want to go probably streamlines that journey so much and probably gets you much closer to where you actually hope to get to kind of much sooner or in a much better way than you would have otherwise kind of gotten to that point. It's a wonderful lesson. Thank you for sharing all of these lessons and these incredible stories. You're a big inspiration. Thank you, Adi. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. To find more episodes of the Business of Family podcast, go to businessoffamily.net. You can also sign up for my email list at businessoffamily.net forward slash newsletter. After you sign up, you'll receive immediate access to all past issues and then one email per week. You can also follow me on Twitter using at Mike Boyd. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend or leave a quick review on iTunes, which will help more people discover the business of family. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.